Thanks for joining us on an episode of Insecurity Theater, the show where we discuss transnational crime and political intrigue. Brought to you through the cooperation of an international panel of experts. For more information or to get in touch, find us at analyticasecura.com or on your social media platform of choice. Without any further delay, enjoy the show. No, yeah, well, I've been, you know, I've been doing unexpectedly fine uh, during this, uh, these, these two months of isolation. Like I thought it would have been harder on me, but um, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm making it through. I still got like 20 days left in the Netherlands and then I'm going to uh, repatriate. Oh, is that true? Uh, yeah, well, basically because, I mean, I, I would have stayed here if I could, but my flatmate, um, my flatmate uh, is moving to Utrecht for work reasons. Hmm. Um, and, um, and I think his sister is moving into this flat. So, um, so that, that was pretty much like, kind of like, you know, you got to move out, dude. Uh, and um, because of the whole pandemic situation, there wasn't really any point in me looking for another place here in Groningen because uh, the, the university is shut down until September and I, I pretty much finished my courses. So, wow. Uh, well, so yeah, you how, to, how, you're, you're going to uh, be able to move. You're going to be able to cross the border. Uh, I, I think so. I'm pretty sure. Um, even if they don't reopen the uh, the airports here in the Netherlands, there is um, there are flights from Brussels to Rome, and uh, I know that like if you're like if you have a valid motive, um, and, like documents to certify it, uh, then then you can cross borders and do stuff. I'm just uh, waiting before I, I book the tickets because uh, Italy is just about like uh, we're just about the about the the moment where you declare uh, the the sort of like second phase of the whole pandemic containment thing so they're trying to reopen part like like you know the, the few things that can reopen um and so they're probably gonna gonna change some of the some of the restrictions like they're gonna they're going to update some of the restrictions so i'm just uh, waiting for that to happen before i, I buy the ticket because you know uh, otherwise i might just uh, spend more money than than is needed or just uh yeah I don't, you know, I don't want, I don't want to have any unnecessary inconveniences. Yeah. Because it's always, it's always a bummer to uh, make all the trip, make the trip all the way back. Anyways, how, how are you, man? How are, uh, by the way, are you in the US? Because you were in Madrid last time. Uh, yeah. Like last time we, we, we spoke, like before, uh, before the pandemic started. Um, and I'm still there. I'm, still I'm there. enjoying, I'm enjoying the Spanish quarantine orders about as much as I can. And my understanding is that it's very similar to the way that Italy has locked itself down and for a similar duration. So, yeah, yeah. The, the only difference is that um, uh, we had one specific region being the being the worst affected. And um, and actually, if we had kind of like lower numbers in that region, maybe we would have started reopening some, st some stuff earlier on. Hmm. While in, in Spain, it's pretty much like Madrid. So like, I think that that's, that's the, uh, that was the bad news for Spain, that it's like the, the, the outbreak started out, well, not, not the whole outbreak, but like the, 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 worst, um, the worst outbreak started out in the capital. Exactly. And that's always, that's, always, that's always bad, man. Like, we, I think... There are quite a few people here who have not survived through the pandemic. I think the most recent estimate I read was 24,000 for a population of only about 50, 55,000, 45,000, somewhere in there, a million, excuse me, uh, population yeah, yeah, estimate. Yeah, yeah well, uh, th their numbers are pretty similar to ours. Um, 
um, with the only difference that we have something like 10 million more people, but we also have like our uh, mortality figures are also in, in the, yeah, in the 20,000, 25,000 range. Mm. Haven't, haven't checked. Uh, and then there's the whole, you know, there's the whole point of how many actual uh, dead people have we missed because maybe they died in a, in a re- retirement home or, uh, or have we overcounted some of them because they happened to have the, the pathogen, but that wasn't the, the cause of death, whatever, you know, all of that is going to become clear maybe in, in something like a year or so. Perhaps, but may, the disparity in the methods by which these different countries uh, assign mortality to this virus versus perhaps other uh, other causes of death might it might be very difficult to untangle what actually happened even with a few years of of history behind yeah, us. Yeah, there's gonna there's gonna it's, it's gonna take a lot of people collecting a lot of data because you know in Italy even even within Italy we don't have a unified uh, um, like unified tracking uh, criteria which is crazy. Like I heard it on the news something like two or three days ago. I was like, what, seriously? Like we don't have a unified list of criteria that, that like the whole nation uses to like count their debt. And apparently we don't. Like every region has their own, <laughs> their own thing. Uh, so you, you, well, you stayed in Madrid and that's understandable because they probably wouldn't have allowed you back, uh, back into the US. And I'm not even sure that you, want, you would have, you know, uh, I'm not even sure you would be doing much better there no very chaotic at the moment exactly it seems that there was that the effect of the travel restrictions was just to delay the transmission of the virus into the americas but the fact of the matter is some of the major metropolitan areas new york specifically is really suffering and uh, the u.s is recording a huge amount of uh, of infectious cases and and also of deaths um I wonder, I wonder what methodology each individual hospital or each individual doctor uh, puts into practice to determine whether someone died directly as a result of the virus or if they were symptomatic, but they don't want to waste a test, so they have to make an assumption, perhaps. I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that the U.S. is taking a lot of criticism for the reported number, and it may not be entirely fair to uh, to compare death to death. No, I don't think I don't think critici- like I don't think any criticism about numbers is uh, is fair by now because I mean unless you're in a country that like you're in literally the most transparent country in the world, which I don't know what what it, what is. Me, perhaps Germany. I don't know. It's like mm. I've, I've seen a lot of weird shit. Uh, I mean, weird in the sense of like very weird for a democracy, or at least for a, the idea of democracy that we like to, uh, we, we like to, um, uh, we like to have here mm. in the West. I've seen a lot of shit happening in the Netherlands as well, and uh, and uh, of course a lot of controversy in Italy because uh, I, I get more detailed news about my home country than I get here in the Netherlands because my Dutch is not, you know, I made some improvement, but it's still pretty poor. No. So, um, congratulations. One thing, like, for one, that. one thing that I saw is that, like, uh, and I, I really don't mean this in any political sense, just like an observation that uh, Trump is becoming kind of a stand, uh, like a, a, a stand figure that ch- takes other people's shit as well. Like, it's, yes. it's kind of like he's become one of those, 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 uh, how do you call them in English? Like, those poles that attract lightnings. Yeah, like a lightning like, rod, exactly. Yeah, he's a lightning rod for all the shit that everybody has done, but just because he's 
done it in like you know more intensely and more outlandishly yeah. uh, uh, people get to sort of like hide behind uh behind his blunders and he uh, always has a microscope on every single thing that he does and says and then the media will take a, a, an innocuous statement or or a misspeak and yeah, turn it into headlines for a week the degree to which everybody's like uh, you know even as a leftist I, I i agree with the with um with the liberal media in america being like totally freaking out way too much about um uh, about the president because it's like i mean if you like if you come to the conclusion that this president is absolutely no good in any respect for which would, would also be my idea um mm. then it doesn't really make sense to keep uh spewing that out every single day i mean it's like okay you've concluded that trump is you know uh, everything every label you could possibly attach to him just like yeah. move on well, uh, unfortunately they still need to put uh put bread on their plates and yeah, apparently yeah, there's yeah. There's a market for for headlines that say that Trump's a monster. And it's like, how many... I agree with you. How many times can you publish that same headline? How many times can you completely spin a story sideways and then lose not only one, but possibly this, the next election for the same reason? It boggles my mind. Uh, but I do understand that it's... If you look at the media as a predatory... Uh, as a system that includes yeah, a lot yeah, of predatory yeah, but actually, actors. but it's it's the media's owners. Like it's not even the journalists, because like I mean, some journalists are just you know not like they like sensationalism. Like they they like mm. the part that they have to play. Uh, but some other journalists are are pretty much just um, sort of um, forced to go along with uh, with this uh, to go along with the script because that's the script that creates the most engagement, and they don't. You know they don't they don't get money from from paper uh, from like printed newspapers anymore like the media is in a is a is in a huge crisis in that regard uh they need to uh, most of the money they get like most of their salaries come from advertising money so mm -hmm. they gotta they gotta you know uh literally keep the engagement of of consumers um and the way you do that is basically by by becoming a clickbait agency of course uh, anyways well uh, I mean that that actually uh, segues pretty well into one of the first questions that I had come up with uh, prior to talking to you. So we talked about the media as an establishment and and its leadership structures forcing journalists to behave a certain way. But that begs, of course, uh, the question as to alternative uh, sources of media. Now, what I've been kind of curious about, and I know that you're uh, studying philosophy or, or perhaps you've finished uh, your philosophy studies and uh, my questions surround this idea of the role of philosophy in society but specifically uh, I wonder why you think that there persists this gap in understanding between experts in philosophy and the general public um Ooh, that's that's a very broad question. Um, well, I, I think um, there is this, I would call it a misconception, but it's a sensitive topic. So somebody would think that it's actually like how things are. Um, there's this general misconception that anybody can, and in a sense it is true, anybody can do philosophy in a sense that everybody can engage with the discipline of philosophy in some way or another. Uh, and that's not the same thing like and, and that's not the same for like scientific natural scientific disciplines um, 
kind of like kind of the kind of the same thing that exists with the divide between social and the natural sciences it's like uh, there is a folk uh, there is a, a pop philosophy and there is a folk psychology but there is no such thing as a folk chemistry or like a a a, a, a pop quantum physics mm-hmm. so um i think it's because of the very nature of 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 philosophy like philosophy was first uh defined as the most general of disciplines so in that sense it is accessible to everyone uh, but the misconception is that philosophy is useless and the like philosophy just deals with uh matters of uh, like with, with speculative things or like with uh, with abstract stuff that nobody actually nobody ever needs uh in their daily life and uh yeah and that's I don't know where it comes from. I think it's, I think, I suspect that it's a result of the overly positivistic mindset uh, that we have in the West. I mean, like, and I don't mean it in any anti-scientific sense, but I do believe that, uh, for example, we have a narrative about science and especially during the pandemic and and after the first month of the pandemic, I've I've come to this conclusion. I would like our narrative about how science works and and what it does is completely out of whack. Because we turned it into a religion of its own, um, so you know, even people who are hardline advocates for like for for science, uh, sometimes they misinterpret their own their own uh, discipline. But there was a, there was this case about this this um, guy, he's an epidemiologist, and he. Uh, by the way, am I talking too much? Or it's uh, perfect. Go keep going. Um, one example that uh, I think. It, you know, um, embodies this um, this um, this kind of disjunction between like what science actually is and how people, even scientists, talk about it. Um, there is this epidemiologist called uh, John Ioannidis, um, and uh, the guy, you know, is a very re- renowned uh, scientist within the scientific community, uh, within the medical community, and he also wrote a very influential paper in 2005 uh, titled. Uh, why most published research is wrong, uh, and the paper was basically a, a um, well, a, a big, not an accusation, but it was like a report um, about um, all the mistakes and all, let's say, everything that is actually wrong with current uh, research practice, like you know the fact that mo- many studies are not replicated, uh, or the fact that uh, you know the some some. Uh, cause and effect relation is um, overemphasized mm. or artificially kind of boosted because, you know, uh, uh, researchers need to publish in order to get, you know, paid and for the university to, to, to the university they belong to, to, to climb the ranks. Uh, and so there are pressures in this. Sense. Anyways, this guy, John Ioannidis, um, he recently came out with an interview uh, where he said that um, he was convinced that Basically, we're blowing the whole thing out of proportion because, and, and he said that based on the uh, mortality rates that are estimate, like currently estimated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, you know, shortly after, um, he got a bunch of rebuttals by by colleagues of his uh, because basically he he had confused the map with the territory in a sense. You know, to put it in very in very uh, uh, profane words, because the a mortality rate is the number of reported infections divided by the number of reported deaths. Hmm. And um, this conveys the idea that an epidemic, like a disease is as like as dangerous as that specific mortality rate. Like they use it as a proxy for how dangerous an epidemic is. But the problem with that is that it, it, it completely uh, ignores 
you know, the overburdening of hospitals and the, the, the whole uh, intensive care yes. uh, uh, environment, which, you know, like if you actually wanted to be accurate, uh, you would have to add to the mortality rate all the number of people who are currently under ICU treatment uh, because, you know, if they didn't have ICU treatment, those people would die. So that, mm. that would make and that would make the disease much more more dangerous and much more deadly uh, than the current figures. So, um, uh, I mean, that, that for me was an instance of a scientist who takes his own, who takes numbers and hard data um, almost too seriously, like too seriously as in you don't you don't even stop for a minute thinking about um, what what those numbers are supposed to tell you. And you already like kind of like, you know, uh, interpret them as, as a truth in themselves instead of a unit of measurement that hides, you know, that highlights some things and hides some other things. Well, um, do, you, do you think that that's a problem of a an overly simplistic model or do you think that that's a, a procedural error that's that's? No, I think it's, I I don't think it's, I don't think it's, um, it's a, it's a shortcoming of the model. Uh, I think it's um, a mentality kind of bias. Um, It's this idea that um, you can get from a data point to, um, to, from data point to action without mediation, like without, you know, uh, the, the idea that the numbers you have on a spreadsheet by themselves can tell you what to do. Um, and uh, and that's a that's a mentality problem. It's not a it's not a you know it's not a model problem. Uh, it's it's uh, and I think I mean my personal take on it um, is that um, there should be some more philosophy of science in scientific curricula, like in you know in hard science scientific curricula. Of course, it's a, you know it's it's a it's part it, it's not completely unpartisan. It's it's uh, I, I understand that saying this while being a student in philosophy is cannot count as a neutral opinion. Uh, and on the other hand, there are many people from the natural sciences who would probably uh, consider this as an insult or, you know, mm-hmm. close to that. Um, but I, I do believe it. And I, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not saying that they should be, you know, that, that half the curriculum should just be about philosophical matters what, and what, like, what science really is. Uh, I'm talking like five five credits, like out of 180 or something like that, uh, just so they know that there is something like a philosophy of science, and it deals precisely with those questions that uh, that hard sciences do not concern themselves with because uh, because they they cannot be assessed uh, by scientific procedures. So, for example, like the idea that scientific facts are um, uh, real vis-a-vis the constructed. Uh, is often misinterpreted as okay. Well, you have the people who believe in truth, and you have the people who are just relativists, and it's it's actually not that simple. Um, you know, like even if you, or or if, for example, like um, militant atheists, people like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, the, those guys, hmm. um, those are also perfect example, examples of of um, narrowly minded scientists, like people who believe you can get. The meaning of life from the hard facts of science and that's just that's just ridiculous because facts by definition uh they are uh, they don't have any value in and of themselves like a, a, mm. a fact is a fact it's a, it's you know it's um uh, it's a state of affairs in the world that it doesn't really convey any value without a human being attributing some value to it be it positive negative neutral whatever 
aesthetic, uh, you know. Um, Can we perhaps draw a parallel to the application of philosophy and consider philosophical concepts as also not actionable without some type of mediating layer? Uh, well, yeah, sure. Uh, and, and the first, the first mediating layer in that sense would be language. Uh, um, I mean, it's 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 hard. sometimes it's hard to think about it in those terms because language is something that we perceive as very immediate. You know, it's it's the form uh, in which our thoughts are expressed. Uh, you know, there there can there can be debates, and there's you know, philosophy has a bunch of sub sub disciplines. So I mentioned philosophy of science mm-hmm. before. Uh, there is also philosophy of mind. Uh, which is basically uh, de- deals with you know it started out with uh, Descartes and the famous cogito thing, uh, and um, anyways you can debate uh, you can debate a lot whether we think stuff already in a language or if we think in terms of concepts and then we translate afterwards. And I'm not a neuroscientist, so I have mm. no idea how that works. Um, but in any case, when we talk to each other, we use language and. Um, so the understanding of the concepts that are conveyed through that language are dependent on me and you, for example, using a concept in the same way or like giving the same meaning to a, to a word. And that actually connects, I think this, this also connects to, to, um, to the media environment we were talking about before. Because uh, if, like, if you think about how the, the communication, how, how modern digital communication works, uh, there are so many occasions where the meaning of a certain term um, becomes crystallized into something because many people use it in that sense. Hmm. Uh, or or, or for some, sometimes you have open-ended meanings that just become kind of weaponized on both sides of the aisle. For example, a fake news is one, one example. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, there are people on, you know, uh, people on the center left and the left uh, who... who um, complain that um, that uh, Russian fake news uh, helped uh, help Trump win in the election. Uh, but, you know, Trump supporters, on the other hand, uh, call the mainstream media fake news. Uh, so, you know, uh, yes, there is there are always mediating layers. And uh, and uh, yeah, the first one is language. The second one, I would say, is is, for example, the screen through which you watch something. Mm. Um, you know the, the the sheer fact that that texting is not the same thing as talking because so many dimensions of expression get lost in in the passage between talking and like writing something as a text message. There's always there there are always mediating layers, but they're not always they're not always concrete in their existence. Uh, but there are mediating mediating layers also in establishing like true and and valuable scientific facts. For example, like mm-hmm. the existence of DNA is dependent on the existence of microscopes that can fucking see the thing. Otherwise, it would be a speculation, right? Of course. Uh, if we didn't, I mean, I'm, I'm being very pragmatist in this sense. I'm like my, I made it my mission from now on to to um, to switch, uh, to, to, to well, to make it easier for Western people to switch their understanding of science and truth from a, let's say, from the vanilla mainstream understanding of it, which is called the correspondence theory of truth uh, to the pragmatist theory of truth. Um, and could you explain briefly the the intricacies of those two, perhaps? Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, it, it can sound it can sound weird that there is 
there are such things as uh, theories of truth. And I think this is part of the problem that it sounds so weird because um, especially in, in, in high school and in, in, you know, in middle school and whatever, like before college, uh, everybody gets taught a version of science that doesn't really, you know, doesn't really go beyond what the scientific method is and, and how, you know, what science does. And we all have this 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 um, thing that I call the discovery story, right? Like we make, mm. you know, science uh, where science is depicted as this force that like goes on and unveils uh, rea- uh, unveils the reality of the world. So, and, and this is consistent with what in philosophy is called the correspondence theory of truth. So, the cor- you know, the correspondence theory of truth says that a statement is true if it. Um, corresponds to the state of affairs it describes that is the most mm. like let's say that that is the most uh, articulate definition uh, and straightforward definition that i com- can come up with um the pragmatist theory of truth um on the other hand says that um a, not a statement is true but like the, the basically truth is what is expedient to um to the to making predictions that can inform the actions you want to take given the purpose you have. Um, and I think that works much better because it, um, it avoids making truth, which is kind of a, it started out as a religious com- concept, truth. If you, if you look at it etymologically, uh, it means something like constancy, faith, uh, rather than actual reality. Um, so it avoids turning truth it's in a, in, into a value of itself. Uh, and uh, and emphasizes the idea that uh, we actually science enables us to do stuff rather than to mm-hmm. know the truth. You know, uh, for example, like uh, you know, we were um, we were talking about conspiracy theories as well. Like you mentioned conspiracy theories in one of the messages you sent me, um, and I wanted to connect with that because, for example, like think about you know flat earthers or mm-hmm. or people who believe we never went to the moon or people who. Um, um, well, yeah, kind of like no vaxxers and, and you know, th- those those kind of folks. But let, let's begin with flat earthers. Like instead of, like, you know, if a scientist tried to, an average scientist tried to debunk a flat earther, they would come up with uh, like a long winded explanation uh, that either come up with a long winded explanation or just go for like, you're insane. You have to, you know, trust the authority of science, hmm. uh, and uh, and that's pretty much it. And even, you know, even the long-winded version of the debunking would probably come back to, uh, you know, we are scientists. We know better. Like the science is there. You should believe it. Right, which uh, is a bad argument, especially if someone is inclined. It's a bad argument because, like, you're you're taking your 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 interlocutor is somebody who, um, by assumption, like a priori, doesn't trust the official science. Uh, and that 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 goes for every conspiracy theorist. Mm. Like if you're if if the person you're talking to starts from the assumption that you are like you the scientist are a sketchy person, and you have an agenda, then the worst thing you could possibly do is to just tell them to like oh you know believe your authority because mm. that doesn't you know that just reinforces their perception that you're up to something shady. Um, on the other hand, if you ask them like hey uh, have you been using your smartphone today? Oh well yes yeah why. Well, because, you know, do you know how that smartphone works and like how do you, what actually had to be in place for you to be able to uh, to to uh, post your latest tweet, for example. And then, of course, like at some point, uh, the conversation would would verge onto like, well, if you know, if that smartphone works, it means that GPS works and it means that the physics underlying 
you know, how those GPS, how those satellites were built and like shot up into space. Like it all has to match out for your smartphone to work and to connect to the internet. Uh, and so it would be like, it would be kind of an explanation that kind of goes like, well, you, you know, you can, you can distrust, distrust science and the scientific community and scientists all you want. And, uh, you know, uh, we need some people to be skeptical because, I mean, we can't turn scientists into the new priests, right? Like they're, they're still human beings. Sometimes they're biased. Sometimes they fuck up. Sometimes they use uh, they used unreliable data, you know? Mm. Uh, and of but course, actually, but, but for like, if you, if you, shift the focus onto actions like onto the usefulness of science rather than the truth value um then I, i'm not you know i'm not saying that conspiracy theorists would stop being conspiracy theorists but um i i i think that the um, harmful implications uh for example that no vaxxers can bring about uh for society as a whole would be curbed to a certain extent because there wouldn't be this much emphasis on like who is bearing the truth, who is holding the truth and who is being deceived. Because it wouldn't be about deception. It would be about trial and error. It would be about like, hey, can you actually like do this thing that you wanted to do? Uh, and what, uh, you know, what instruments are you going to use to perform a given action? And of course, that relies on the mutual understanding that science as a process is going to come to conclusions that are subject to change given new information yeah, or yeah, new exactly, processes. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, a, lot of people, that, a lot of people don't, uh, don't seem to take that for granted. They think that science, they, they, as you had described before, consider science to be like a puddle that expands. And once it has covered an area, it is totally understood to a rock solid degree because science has been applied to it, which, which is a, a terrible way of thinking. And, and you're correct to say that uh, in the development of the way that we're, that, that I was educated, and I assume that this applies to a lot of uh, people who were educated in the West, it, that it is described sort of in that way. And that builds a trust in scientific results, but it certainly lacks the nuance of understanding that that science and those results are subject to change in the future. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because people like, you know, um, I think we get we get this implicit uh, narrative. It, you know, it's never, it's never spelled out explicitly in a school book. Um, but we, we, you know, we are educated in a way that uh, that makes us develop this understanding of like science as something reliable. But the problem with that is that we don't, we never distinguish, like we hardly ever distinguish the process from the results, hmm. right? Uh, so as, as exactly as you said, um, the reliability of science lies in the process and in the procedures that, um, let's say that make each single researcher accountable uh, and not specifically in the result and as also as as you already said yes the, the the results are always subject potentially subject to change i mean every single content that science has produced to use let's say to use a to mm. use a, a youtube analogy every single content that science has produced in principle is revisable it's not you know it's not there written in stone forever and ever and we only get the illusion that there are such things as uh, unchangeable and you know ontologically uh, un uh, immutable scientific facts because we don't live for like 700 years mm. uh, but if we did live for 700 years uh, we would have seen society change from you know uh, switching switching medical theory like switching medical theory something like three or four times 
um, you know, we would get from magical thinking from, to, to, you know, post-Newtonian, like, you know, relativity uh, and all that kind of stuff. And the reason why we believe that, you know, uh, I, I kind of, you know, before taking a class on philosophy of science and pragmatism, I, I used to be like that as well. It's like I thought, I thought that there are some stuff that are just, that it just is there, you know, mm. right? Uh, atoms, uh, DNA, uh, I don't know, like cells in my body, um, which I mean, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to dispute the reality of all these, these items. Um, but the fact that we understand them in a certain way and that we, you know, we, we observe something that corresponds to that uh, doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, you know, 300 years from now, they couldn't, there couldn't be a breakthrough in, uh, in quantum physics that makes all of those explanations, not the items themselves, but all of mm. those explanations completely obsolete. It could happen, and chances are I will not live to see it. And that's why we can sort of afford the illusion that there are such things as unchanging facts, um, but they're dependent on, on the human lifespan being relatively short compared to, like, uh, compared to the trajectory of, of science from, from you know, the beginning to the present days. And these concepts or the understanding of these concepts or even the ability to posit these types of questions is reliant on somebody's ability to grapple with questions that are bigger than their lifespan and maybe bigger than their comprehension. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure how capable the general, uh, the population of the world is to do that. I'm not sure how much uh, effort the average person is willing to expend when it may be more practical in their uh, in their opinion to simply accept pop science and and uh, by extension kind of pop philosophy. And I, if that's if but that's the case, something? yeah, sure. Can I ask something? Like when you when you say, for example, pop philosophy, because I I have let's say I have some some things that my mind evokes if you say something like pop philosophy. Uh, and I just wanted to make sure that it corresponds to, to, to uh, what you're thinking as well. Like, do you mean like, let's say, the connections to philosophy that we, we get in, you know, in, in media products like, I don't know, uh, like, like Reddit uh, subthreads or, or YouTube videos and that kind of stuff? Or do you mean like, do you mean something that is um, specifically attached to like political narratives? So for example, uh, like uh, Robert Nozick uh, as a, as a, as the philosopher uh, that embodies libertarian thought, as opposed to Marx uh, or or Adam Smith or stuff like that. Uh, what did you ha what do you have in mind precisely with the uh, with the concept of of pop um, philosophy? Well, it's possible that the that this kind of cycle of information uh, circling around websites like Reddit is an expression of these ideas. The way that I'm that I intend to describe pop philosophy, I think that we're just about on the same page, is the packaging of thoughts and the uh, personalized analysis of pseudo celebrities, perhaps. And I don't have a long list of modern pop philosophers by based on my definition but let's imagine somebody like a jordan peterson yeah or yeah, any yeah, okay. yeah yeah and uh, did, did you see by the way did you see his um uh, i think it was it, it was last year uh, around around this time of the year i think uh, uh he had um he had a public he had a public debate well it would be hard to call it a debate i would call it mm. a conversation because it, it wasn't um 
it wasn't really organized as a debate uh, with Slavoj uh, Zizek. Yes, and, I did um, not see it. Uh, so if there, if you have, if there are any of your conclusions, I, I, come I've from seen it. it, and I was, um, I was, a li- I was surprised. I mean, on the one hand, this this thing that I'm I'm about to to, to say uh, did surprise me, and on another, on the other hand, it didn't surprise me as much as it could have. Uh, so they really didn't butt heads that much. Like they just um, sort of presented um, their, like a, I would say a general narrative about how they understand, you know, the, the social world and like the economy and the, the systems that let's, let's call it the social systems that we, uh, um, that we are inserted into and that we confront uh, ourselves with every day. Um, and if you like, you know, I think that the big point, like the, the big surprising thing for me was that they didn't really, uh, uh, they didn't get any, they didn't get confrontational at any stage. Uh, not even when, you know, when talking about stuff that they really hold on to, like each of, mm-hmm. each of them. Um, but on the other hand, it wasn't that surprising because, um, you know, uh, there is the figure and then there are the fans who post comments on YouTube. And mm-hmm. you see this like kind of like, polarizing dynamic that just uh, expands much beyond and and you know outside um, what is the original intention by the public figure um, I think I think both uh, both Zizek and Peterson have sometimes kind of been vulnerable themselves to these tendencies so for example you know um, there especially when you know in, in 2017 when there was the whole uh, the the whole uh, Me Too and uh, you know feminism and anti-feminism business you know the hot days of that let's call it the hot days of that uh, to uh, a couple years ago um, there were people who let's say who are by who who um, really hold on to f- extreme far right positions who were sort of sympathizing with Peterson and uh, and you you couldn't see a straightforward like I mean, you would see, uh, you know, these avowals mm-hmm. of of those people being uh, being mentioned by Peterson himself many times, but never, never in a sort of like public, you know, public statement that I don't want to have anything to do with these kind of people. Uh, and the same, kind of, the, the same was true for for uh, for Zizek, because like he's always, he's constantly given interviews uh, um, to Russia Today, and sometimes like they're clearly trying to, <laughs> they're clearly mm-hmm. trying to get him to say something that is is pro-russian or like um, uh, anti-western in a sense um, especially anti you know uh, western and western democracy narratives and sometimes he's been uh, he's been kind of uh, leaning into it and sometimes he's sometimes he actually kind of got himself out, himself out of it but the, the point was that you know there, there are a lot of, of figures around the internet who you could characterize as, as pop philosophers some of them are like you know proper philosophers uh, that um, I mean by proper I mean like somebody who has an academic training in philosophy. Mm-hmm. So for example, uh, Zizek would be a proper philosopher. Peterson, not formally, but uh, well, it's, I, I'd say as a as a clinical psychologist, somebody who has a psychological training, like very thorough psychological training, I could grant him uh, that he can have competence talking about uh, philosophy stuff. Although he does simplify, like he does simplify to almost an extreme degree the authors that he doesn't like. Um, and I understand why he doesn't like them. And yeah. with, with some of those criticisms, I even agree. Uh, I, I 
do partly agree with this criticism of uh, Marx. I do partly agree with this criticism of Foucault, for example. But he always strawmans them, like he strawmans mm-hmm. them very, mm-hmm. very harshly. Um, and that's you know that, but that's you know, that's to be expected in a sense. And perhaps that oversimplification is a characteristic of the pop aspect of of pop philosophy, and maybe it's necessary in order to communicate these thoughts to the population, to the the intended recipients, and to certainly get them in. Visible, yes. In both yeah. of these cases, it's it's certainly the case that uh, that these thinkers are are attempting to engage directly without necessarily being dragged around by the weight of their audiences, and I think that that's why it's best not it's best for them not to grapple with the engagement, the direct engagement with their fan bases or with groups that might be a little bit more extreme or less extreme, but that. In order for them to be relevant during their lifetimes, and that's another factor of this, is we can study uh, dead thinkers based on their writings, but living thinkers have to co- have to exist within the world around us, and and they're subject to their behavior, and they're subject to the behavior of their fans to some slight degree, right or wrong. Sure. Yeah. 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 I totally agree with that. Um... Yeah, of course. And also in order, like if you, if you have a message that also has political implications or, or let's say it has immediate implication in everyday life, doesn't have to be political, but you want it to be visible. So you have to state it in, in a way that, you know, uh, in Italian we say buca lo schermo. It's like you got to drill a hole through the screen hmm. because there are many people saying a million different things. And if you want yours to stick out, you have to phrase it in a certain way. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, newspapers are now, you know, publishing headlines that are more and more sensationalist because they want people to consume their news. Uh, and so, you know, Canada, it's the, same, the, the same thing is, is valid for any public figure and any writer, uh, you know, anybody who wants to, uh, let's say, that in, engages in some form of creative production and wants, you know, wants people to consume that product. Um, so yeah, it is partly. I, I would say yes. The straw manning and the oversimplification is is partly um, is a part of what we have been, you know, part and parcel of what we've been calling uh, pop philosophy. Uh, in a precisely for this reason that you gotta, you can't, you can't be detailed if you want your stuff to be palatable to everyone. Hmm. Um, on the other hand, I think it's also it's it's reinforced by a dynamic that is specific. Uh, I don't want to say to our, I don't want to say to our age because it wasn't really like that ten years ago. I would say, you know, to to this this intensely uh, intensification of of um, of digital communication, like the you know the, the let's say the digital age that we could say uh, started out in the in the twenty tens. Mm. especially with social media and basically we live in a dictatorship of apology uh that that is that is my understanding um Mm -hmm. in the sense and by by that i mean that you cannot draw a critical remark on somebody else's position or on on a given position without sounding like you are giving some credibility to the opposite position all right and that's like that's you know going back to to zizek versus versus uh peterson um, and the days of the days of, of, of the Me Too movement, for example, like for example, they, I think one of the reasons why they got they they, they got together in, in that public uh, debate uh, was that they were both opposed to uh, 
political correctness and to, uh, mm. to, to uh, yeah, to, to, the, to these, you know, to these tendencies uh, uh, that we associate with political, pol political correctness and, uh, you know, language policing and, and stuff like that. Uh, but in those days, it was clear, for example, it would have been almost impossible for somebody to draw, to, to draw some criticism of, um, of some, let's say, some very, you know, hardline or fem uh, feminist positions. Uh, for example, like, you know, they had the, the slogan, believe all women was easily criticizable. And I think it would have been very rational to criticize it on, on many respects, but it would have been impossible to do that without sounding like, mm -hmm. you, you know, without sounding like, like a, 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 a sexist apologist. And uh, you know the same thing is is also true for for uh, for the um, opposite side. Mm -hmm. um, it's like I don't know, like emphasizing that um, uh, market freedom or competition are good drivers for innovation, um, which is a remark that I would totally subscribe to as a leftist. Uh, I do believe this myself. Um, it would hardly not not qualify you as uh, you know either as a wimpy centrist or an outright neoliberal apologist uh, in, in in leftist ranks, um, and I guess it's I, I don't know I, I don't I don't talk to many people um, who have uh, well I mean like you would be one of the few exceptions although you are you're more more libertarian than conservative mm -hmm. uh, as, as I understand it. Uh, at least as far as social issues are concerned, I'm talking like, you know, the, the usual list, abortion, uh, gay marriage and that kind of stuff. Right. I would agree with I would agree with that statement. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that, um, you know, there are some moderate conservatives who also have this problem uh, on their part um, if they if they want to draw criticism uh, of um, of some right wing positions. And I think that this is a result of um communicative connections being so, you know, large scale, like the mm. fact that your audience, when you tweet something, your audience is potentially in the millions because the, your audience uh, is constituted by everybody who reposts your tweet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So even if you have just a thousand followers, you can, you know, you can, you can write something that is particularly scandalous or particularly witty or particularly funny. And then all of a sudden you're a Twitter sensation. Um, of course, there is going to be polarization in a world like that, right? Like, of, of course, course uh, uh, if, if, you know, if, if I say something without knowing how many people will read it uh, and without the intention of making it into like a book or something like without, you know, uh, there, there, are, there are things that we say and do and, and things that we make, for example, writing books, or, you know, um, well, whatever, mm. you know, there are things that we do with an open-ended audience, like, right, yeah. or an open-ended uh, amount of consumers. And right? we're very deliberate when we when we communicate yeah, through yeah, those yeah, media. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there is like, we treat, we treat that, but, you know, which we usually do that as a, as a form of promotion, meaning that like, if I am going to deliberately write or say or draw in a picture or, uh, or write in a song, uh, something that has an open-ended audience, I'm going to do it self-consciously and I'm going to follow some kind of procedure. And especially I am going to look out for an audience. Hmm. Whereas with, like, with, with statements on Twitter or Facebook or any social media, uh, that's not necessarily the case, right? Like sometimes people write stuff without any intention, you know, with, without thinking about their tweet as a product, mm -hmm. right? 
uh, you know, sometimes, you know, I've, I posted some rants on Facebook that I really wouldn't have wanted to, you know, to be reposted around the world because they're like embarrassing. Uh, and I'd that, say we yeah, all that, it. Yeah, that, that kind of, you know, that kind of changes the dynamic because like you, you might be writing something and have your friends in mind, your Facebook friend or your Twitter mm -hmm. contact in mind. And, um, but then, you know, it gets, it gets bigger. Like the meaning, its meaning, its social meaning gets way bigger than it was intended. Um, and, you know, when, when, when you have hundreds of millions of people engaging in this activity of like, you know, making open-ended, like making commentary about anything with an open-ended audience that can just repost your, your comments over and over, um, you create, like you facilitate polarization. Yeah, that actually was uh, was something that I wanted to bring up as well, is that this sea of millions and millions of potential voices engaging with your thoughts as uh, as you've published them, you're going to see an increasing uh, degree of extremity, both among uh, those supporting your thoughts who may be beyond beyond your level of comfort and also certainly the critics who are competing, everyone's competing for the attention of, yeah. of the general observer. And so my theory is that this is always going to push people to hold and to project more and more extreme and compressed and overly simplified uh, yeah. accounts of, of what it is that you said or what it is that, uh, that they think that you said. And I wanted to know if you think that this tendency to push voices, and that's not, not necessarily to describe the thoughts of these in, of, of the average person, but yeah, the yeah, voice yeah. of the average person towards the extremes and, and away from maybe uh, civilized is a loaded word, but a debate that, that, that uh, both parties can walk away from uh, relatively content. Uh, yes, yes, I do believe that th that is the case. And I also believe that, uh, in, you know, in the long run, um, it's going to deceive the very people who engage in it and who contribute uh, to making this dynamic ever more, you know, ever more intense and ever more uh, consequential um, because it drives everybody paranoid. You know, mm. uh, I, I do think that one of the reasons why, for example, uh, well, there is this, this sense or at least that's, you know, um, that's something that uh, I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about recently. That, for example, in the U.S., it's very hard now for Democrats and Republicans to get along, like as, as you know, as friends, uh, or to even have instances of every, like just everyday socialization together. And I don't think that it's 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 because of the particular nature of the issues that are being dealt with, nor do I believe that it's uh, it's about the, the 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 nature of the individuals involved in it. I don't mm. think I don't think Donald Trump is 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 as special. Uh, you know, and I think that it, the fact that he is considered like he he ended up there, like he ended up winning the Democratic nomination, uh, sorry, the, <laughs> the mm -hmm. Republican nomination and then the presidency. I think that those are all, you know, from a leftist perspective, those are symptoms like you can't you can't call, treat contemporary politics and contemporary com media communication as as just like an oddity, a singularity that is just a crazy age. You know, it's all symptoms of like deeper stuff that we haven't really been thinking through uh, all the way. And, and, you know, one of the things that we one of these things that we haven't really been thinking through is how we use how society uses social media. Um, and uh, because people think it's a some people think it's a free space for for, you know, for the expression of thought. 
And uh, you know, it would be great, but it's very naive to conceive it to conceive it in that way. And then, you know, when we when we start reckoning with the consequences, we just believe that people are crazy or that we live in a crazier world than 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 it was just 15 years ago. And I think I think that's a very vanilla and naive understanding of, of the whole thing. Um, I tend to agree. And perhaps uh, I've adopted my view of not only American politics, or perhaps this can be universalized, but also my interpretation of uh, of the collective uh, pool of thought on the internet, I conceptualize it all more as a as a theatrical performance, and especially in the case of U.S. politics, which during our lifetimes has gone from um, from a a world where ideological opponents can reach some type of an understanding between them. But to borrow a term from uh, American professional wrestling, which is yeah, another yeah, theatrical. Yeah, 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 kayfabe. I, kayfabe. I heard about okay. it too. Yeah, 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 yeah. There is, Good, um... so you already, well, I'll, I'll explain it for the benefit of the audience in case yeah, they're yeah, not. Yeah, sure, uh... sure, go on. So the idea being that all of these uh, political persons are not only themselves, but bigger than that, have to fall, fit into a role uh, a role where they uh, advance their story and they have to defeat some type of an adversary that's placed against them. And our binary political system, of course, has a very uh, has a pre-existing uh, animosity between Republicans and Democrats, and also to smaller degrees factions within these parties. But you simply cannot uh, you cannot project this this strength and this struggle. And then at the end of the day, go out for a drink with someone from across the aisle. It simply, it simply ruins. Yeah, yeah. Because the, the parallel would be with uh, the parallel would be in this case with uh, what goes on in professional wrestling, meaning that uh, um, professional wrestling matches and tournaments are pre-scripted mostly. Yes. Uh, I mean, when something out of the script happens, it's because somebody fucks up or somebody improvises, but they're generally scripted. And the kayfabe is the illusion of, is the suspension, if the equivalent of the suspension in, of disbelief in like novels, right? So you basically, you watch wrestling as, as you know, as a, as a, um, um, as a savvy, you know, a savvy uh, wrestling fan and knows mm. that there is scripted, scripted stuff going on, that there are pre- uh, uh, pre-made tropes like this whole thing with like heels and faces mm -hmm. uh, that the good the good guys and the bad guys and you know eventually the bad guys gotta lose but and they gotta do a bunch of crazy shit in the meanwhile um, but they, they gotta lose but they're re relatable and they got you know all the, the fact that there is a script behind what actually goes on um, has become has become um, a lens that you can apply to modern, like to co contemporary politics and and uh, and media, and and, um, and I certainly do. And there's only one more layer of abstraction that I want to add because you you summed it up perfectly that these uh, these wrestling matches, the same way that a political debate uh, as a standalone event is certainly something that's very manicured. And in the case of wrestling, there is a predetermined winner and loser. But the 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 layer of detail that extends beyond that, and this is something that's exclusive to wrestling as a form of theatrical media, is that the wrestlers' personas 
that our friends in the ring are friends out in public when they're seen yeah. together at events. And those that are uh, that, that share an animosity with each other cannot ever be seen uh, socializing together outside of the ring or yeah, that exactly. second layer. They can, they, can, they, can tacitly, they can tacitly respect each other and they can like... They, they could send each other a text message, but they couldn't right. be seen in public together. Exactly. They don't they, break that, that's it. And that really, that is kind of the bone of the illusion. And even for those who, uh, who understand that the individual matches are scripted and that the uh, characters are, are simply that, they're characters, they still need to maintain that invisibility of the very real friendships. I mean, these people are in a small industry and generally they come to respect each other. But if it's uh, if it's the case that they're prescribed to be enemies within the, the overall script, much in the way of Republicans and Democrats, who yeah. I'm sure golf together, drink together, or do whatever it is that politicians do without insinuating any kind of wrongdoing, uh, they yeah. cannot... In both cases, they they cannot make those uh, friendships or relationships public because that is what would really yeah. destroy the. Do you remember? That you, um, um, I think it was some months ago. There was this whole case with um, with Ellen DeGeneres, like uh, posting posting a, like a video of herself watching. Um, I think it was a football match or a baseball match, and she was sitting next to um, to George Bush Senior to mm. to uh, uh, George W. Um, and like I mean, apparently, probably that's because they, you know, they know each other in real life. Um, and there was a lot of fuzz about it because, of course, uh, many, many uh, fans of Ellen DeGeneres are Democrats, uh, and they would see this as a uh, something as a as a dissonance, right? Hmm. And um, and I think, you know, the way this relates to the kayfabe phenomenon is, uh, and and I think this also has something to do with uh, with why um, left wing why the left is not really doing that well, <laughs> hasn't really done that well in the last five years. Uh, and there's, and beside all of these socioeconomic explanations, you know, like, you know, right, okay, yeah, rising inequality, culture, com cultural confusion, uh, the, the victimhood culture that has developed in some, in, in some, um, um, some environments of, of uh, North American academia, especially, and, and British academia. Mm -hmm. um, all of that, like I think one of the reasons why we we keep losing elections is because we are the unaware characters in, in the drama. And I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that all of the people on the other side of the aisle are uh, you know are playing a character in a way in a self-conscious way. I don't think that they are all doing that. But I do believe that um, let's say faking animosity or like kind of like, you know, uh, uh, doubling down on the animosity and on the mutual um, hostility, um, especially in, an, in a very narrative and outlandish way, is something that um, many pe most people on the left wouldn't do because it interferes with their version of purity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, 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 you know, I think, uh, for example, like people sometimes accuse... Uh, um, Donald Trump of of having and being pathologically narcissistic, um, and you know, like if you didn't treat it as a big theatrical play, uh, there would be some you know there would be some merit in that argument. But mm. because we are talking about kayfabe, um, the problem is not with Trump 
possibly you know having narcissistic personality disorder which i don't i don't care if he does or not i don't think uh, because like i mean he's been elected and mm-hmm. and he got uh, he's so before even having the conversation uh you know the liberal left and even the progressive left to say it in in you know in the american uh, uh vernacular mm-hmm. should ask themselves like am i you know am i inadvertently playing along with a scripted <laughs> with a scripted rest- wrestling match and if i am how do i you know how do I either come out uh, the other end, you know, not necessarily as a winner, but at least as somebody who ha- who doesn't believe to have won just because he thinks he or she thinks they have the, the moral high ground. And there's, there's this pathology of, of responding, uh, um, you know, responding to, uh, to, to provocation on the, this. And this is still the left I'm talking about mm-hmm. responding to a provocation with a, uh, um, with an expression of purity, but we like, without, you know, this idea that when they go low, we go high. That doesn't fucking work anymore no. because, you know, it's never clear if it's, if, if what is happening is happening on a, on a play, you know, if it's happening on a screen, you're never sure if it's happening as a play or happening uh, IRL. Hmm. And on the other hand, I think that the, you know, the, the self attribution of moral, moral credibility, um, that is performed on the left, you know, by critic, social critics, but also regular everyday people, activists, or politicians. It just doesn't work anymore because there is so much widespread confusion and frustration. And I, I'm, you know, I mean, both on the left and on the right. If you had to actually, you know, uh, uh, if you had to actually go count the people, actually most most of most of the people who identify as as moderate liberals, let's say people who are very like you know the the the, the what what a politically incorrect uh, person would term the coastal elite, you know, mm-hmm. like the, 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 the internationalist establishment that has uh, now has gained this reputation of being so out of touch with with actually with the lower with the lower layers uh, of the socioeconomic pyramid is also partly, you know, it's very it's a very popular uh, it's a very popular culture among among uh, that demographics, I'd say, like victimhood culture and this fucking. This, you know, this fucking uh, uh, um, taking everything so seriously that you actually stop becoming interesting to engage with. Uh, do you think that, you know, the, do you think that victimhood as a currency perhaps plays into that and the tendency for people to ascribe their the value of their perspective uh, vis-a-vis the amount of victimhood that they can that they can claim, and no, I'm... I, I think it's more subtle than that. Uh, actually, there is a, I got lost in my own tra- train of thoughts before, but the reason why I mentioned this this whole you know um, media uh, allegation of Trump having uh, having a narcissistic personality disorder is is because um, I think that there is a parallel narcissism that goes on on the left, and I think that you could you could totally analyze it psychologically, and I think. Whenever I have time, uh, I'll, I'll try to do that myself, or at least contribute to that conversation. Because, you know, you know, the, the narcissistic component of uh, the Trump persona, the Trump public persona, is you know, uh, self-aggrandizing statements uh, made in, made, for example, in contexts where they wouldn't be necessary or where they they cannot be perceived as positively as they could be, for example, in a rally. Um, but on the left, we have this parallel thing of uh, 
basically verging on the glorification of victimhood. Um, mm-hmm. Especially, this is especially, uh, it, it, you know, it's a very sensitive topic. Um, so I, I know that I'm, I'm preaching to the choir as, as long as I'm talking to you. But if I was talking to uh, some leftist friends of mine, of course, I would be doing all rounds of wordings to sort of like, you know, put disclaimers and trigger warnings all over all over the place. But basically, yeah, that is, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's become a currency, but it's, it's kind of a self-contained currency. So it's, it's a currency that you can only use in a circle of people um, who also uh, tag along with the same political and philosophical narratives as you. Um, for example, you know, like we read a lot of papers, a lot of paper, a lot of literature that was referenced when we were in, in the IR hmm. um, and international relations uh, masters together. Um, and it was, for example, like one of the AT, uh, one of the one of our theory paper, the papers that we had, had to read for theories, uh, with like the post-structuralist uh, feminist scholar kind of drawing a parallel with uh, with mutilation as a way to gain the moral high ground. There's a lot of that going on uh, going on on the left, and sometimes it's paradoxical because it's it's an, a narrative. A, I don't want to call it a, a, a downright ideology because I think. Ideology needs to be more, you know, uh, uh, libertarianism and, Mar- and Marxism are ideologies, mm. not, uh, you know, not victimhood culture. Uh, that's just like the victim narratives are being more and more um, sort of espoused and repeated and reproduced by people who are actually not doing that bad socioeconomically. You know, uh, you know, the, the, the paramount case would be the uh, white academic in their 30s or in their 40s. Um, uh, perpetuating, you know, this this kind of uh, um, yeah, well, victimhood culture in the sense of like, oh well, uh, um, yeah, this 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 glorification of the condition uh, of the victim. It, it's a way of becoming. It's a it's a sort of Zizek himself said it in a very, I think in a very uh, provocative but very eloquent way. Uh, he says like when you hear uh, white, let's say well-earning academics mm. um, making all, you know, uh, um, being so self-conscious and so politically correct about uh, um, minorities and, and gender equality and stuff like that and, stuff. Um, and, and kind of like sort of perpetuating this idea that everybody, I don't know, anyone who is a white, a white male who is not, you know, uh, uh, was not, uh, doesn't have anything else to compensate for all his or her privilege in this case, his, because let's let's go for the most privileged, mm-hmm, most mm-hmm. historically privileged category ever, to, to which we both, me and you, both belong. That's right. Uh, white male. So like this this preaching of of uh, of alleged self hatred or like alleged uh, internalized guilt um, is a form of narcissism in itself because it's you know uh, in the, the term virtue signaling mm-hmm. uh, actually conveys this pretty. Uh, you know pretty well i don't think that everybody on the i don't think that most people on the left uh, actually you know stand by these narratives i do believe that many people tag along with them uh, um, but not in a self-conscious way uh, uh, you know like i think that there, there are a lot of there are a lot of people who vote for the same party as i would vote uh, who wouldn't bring themselves to uh, you know acknowledge the excesses that go on uh, on left, in, 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 you know, in left, in leftist propaganda, let's call it like that, um, because they would be afraid of of 
social sanctions, basically. Exactly. Is- There's such a, a beating that takes place within the circle of these individuals who accept victimhood as a currency that they always need to swivel their heads and make sure that before they make any kind of a claim that addresses their own victimhood, they need to prepare for that next person who is one level deeper and who will eviscerate them for daring to have an opinion that is slightly less that that is uh, underpinned by slightly less victimhood or is less conscious of some of the the even smaller and smaller and smaller minority that who who is oppressed in in some type of uh, of context or theory that 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 pressure that negative pressure and those social beatings that takes take place i think that that really drives the acceptance of this line of thought as a worldview yeah, 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 and it's you know, uh, and the, the the ironic and paradoxical result of that is that you you drive your political faction to be more and more fragmented, and basically you you const- you you give rise to a purity contest, you know, uh, hmm. <laughs> um, you know the, the the extreme purity contest on the right is usually uh, you know on either on the basis of strength or it goes you know downright racial and ethnic ethnic mm-hmm. basis. Uh, but the, the purity contests on the right, on the left are purity contests of you know who's been more victimized structurally by history, uh, and then and then if you start taking that too seriously, like many people many people uh, are doing today, because some people have started doing it systematically several decades ago. Uh, the problem with that is that you are going to be more and more fragmented and and sort of like institute a rule whereby some people because you know they are hardline for example hardline marxists i have i myself have some very dear friends of mine who you could classify as hardline marxists for mm-hmm. at least for american standards um and you know in, the, in a political context where which is italy like italy up until a couple years ago um where you have a f- very socially conservative party uh, like you know what on the left is referred to as right-wing populism, but mm. right-wing populism uh, surging in the polls and like getting very, very close to uh, getting such a substantial degree of power that they could actually change some constitutional laws. And of course, like if you think strategically as a leftist, like whatever you can throw at that phenomenon to kind of like curb it and contain it, just do it. All right. And these people would have troubles voting for the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party is not pure enough in a sense, because there are some centrists, because they haven't, you know, because some of their candidates have done stuff that uh, wasn't really in line. Uh, well, in some cases, the unions, the, the worker unions, which my father works for, have been disrespected. And I agree with that. Like, there mm-hmm. are some candidates of the Democratic Party that I, that I really didn't like. But mm-hmm. when it comes to like when it comes to the fucking battlefield, you fucking join the fight with whatever weapons you have. You can't be like, oh, no, I'm just not gonna vote this time. Uh, which you know, I, I bet that this is, is this is the way it's gonna go with many uh, um, many supporters of Bernie Sanders. Um, which, for example, like if I was if I was a U.S. citizen, I would have you know voted in the primaries for Democrats, and I would have probably voted for Bernie Sanders over mm-hmm. uh, over Joe Biden uh, if it was if it, you know if I was in a late voting state. I don't know if I you know if I had been there in Iowa, I don't know whom I would have voted for. Sure, uh, complex, or, I don't know, Buttigieg. Uh, who knows? Um, 
but certainly, you know, certainly I would bring myself to the to the cabin ballot and cast a vote for Joe Biden uh, when when the time comes. And I'm sure that some Bernie supporters are probably not going to do that because it messes up with their self-image if they cast yeah. a vote for Joe fucking Biden. And <laughs> I've heard exactly that from the leftist circles in which I lurk online sometimes. And it's just simply the the inability for a centrist candidate on the left or for Joe Biden specifically to pass the layers and layers of purity tests, some of which which are entirely reasonable in my opinion, that inability and the desire to force some type of an institutional change within the Democratic Party by the new left or, or alternative left or radical left or however, uh, however we want to classify them is so strong We've seen it. I'm I'm going to ascribe Hillary's loss to in part, in great part, to this sentiment of we're not going to let them drag us towards the center from the perspective of people further on the left. And they simply result in no votes, no show votes or uh, votes for alternative candidates who aren't going to score more than 1% by the end of it and whose names will be forgotten by history, fortunately or unfortunately, yeah. uh, or write-in votes yeah. for Bernie. And I think that that's, I think that this is really symptomatic of the fact that we have this first-past-the-post electoral system that forces a two-party uh, system within the United States where no one, and this is the case for the right too, certainly, no one feels represented by the candidate that is put on the podium in the in the general election. And nobody, very, very few people would vote with a smile on their face, but rather are more motivated by this, if I don't vote for the candidate closest to me, they're going to lose. Uh, and I, yeah. my prediction is that this non-voting, that this inaction in the coming election cycle is going to result in the same result as it had in the last. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm not, I don't think I have like, despite having background in politics, I, I don't think I have the elements to, uh, to know whether, um, whether the, the Democrats will, will win the presidential election or if Trump is going to have a second term. I definitely would believe that if the if if the GOP ran with a different candidate, like if for some reason they scrapped their age-old tradition of running with the incumbent when they have when there is an incumbent, hmm. which is bipartisan, I think, like you know, mm -hmm. Democrats do it, and, and so do the Republicans. Um, you know, if if the GOP could bring itself to change their nominee for the next election, they would win, probably possibly by a landslide. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, well, it's uh, not know, hard not, to beat Joe Biden right now. Yeah, no, not, I mean, like, not with the percentages, which were, you know, it was still pretty close, you know. Uh, there were some some surprising swing, there was some surprising swinging in mm. 2016, but, you know, it was pretty, still pretty close, pretty close, uh, close um, outcome. Um, if, yeah, but if, yeah, if the GOP had a serious, well, more serious in a sense of, like, you know, having a little still being politically incorrect, but like having substantially less shortcomings than the mm. Trump presidency, also in terms of competence. Uh, um, and yeah, well, uh, in terms of image and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and I, 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 you know, I don't want to, I don't want to bash, uh, bash Trump too much. Wow. Anyways, yes, uh, you know, because also, you know, none of none of the people who are dealing with, you know, who are in power right now and having to deal with the whole pandemic, 
are, are receiving any substantial electoral benefit from it. Because, uh, you you know, uh, crisis can get you votes only when they're temporary. So mm. that, you know, within a few months, within a few weeks, it, you can make it look like you did the best the best you could possibly do, which, by the way, I bet is going to become the official narrative of every single government on the planet after this after this pandemic is over. Well, it's um, the only political play. I mean, this might have this might be one of the worst uh, political ca- catastrophes for any given government within the last twenty or thirty years, or we can extend that to a century. I mean, eventually we talk about wars. That's not what yeah, I'm talking but, about. But what I'm worried about is, is the transparency, because I, I think you know, I think that there's going to be a lot of like a lot of critical thinking that could ha- could have happened in these like in, in these day in these months of pandemic uh, is probably going to be pushed aside because people don't like to remember you know people a pandemic is not people are people will be fond of remembering you know mm. it's an exception nobody you know it's a, it's an, an exception that wasn't really positive for most most people uh, many people lost their jobs and so on so there's going to be a natural tendency to avoid talking about especially the the build up to it you know especially mm-hmm. uh, the the let's say I, w- I would say like the february and march uh, february and march months and and uh everything that happened on just only on the media um in that period is i think i consider it, it would be a hugely precious source um for like you know thinking thinking critically about how we process, how we process, well, pretty much, you know, it, 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 it would sum up everything we've talked about so far, like how to process the way we talk about things and the way we get our information, the way we interpret it. Uh, there is, you know, I've seen some, uh, some, some videos, for example, on, on the British media when, like before they started having the big outbreak and you had all the pathologies we mentioned in this hour and I don't know how, how long we've been talking. Uh, mm-hmm. It had like packaged into into 25 minutes, you could see all these processes we've been talking about at work. So like the, you know, the staged script uh, as, as something that is scripted because the media needs its engagement. So for example, there's a video I'm going to send to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, I think it sums it up perfectly. It's a video by Channel 4. Um, and it's from the period where the UK only had something like 500 confirmed cases and like four deaths, you know. So it already sounds like prehistory, like, you know, sounds like the dinosaurs. Yes. Uh, but if you look at it, you see that there's this, there's this journalist who um, um, basically is trying, like, you know, the, 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 the service, the, the commentary is ideally, theoretically, I mean, on the surface, uh, it's meant to give the public some information about what the science says ab- about coronavirus. And uh, there are two hosts. Um, uh, they're both, you know, they're both. Uh, they're not in the studio. They're both um, talking from 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 laptops or like remote connections. Hmm. But there are two people, and it's quite clear, like from from the you know the, the first um, from the very first intervention of each of the two guests, it's like clear that they they represent they embody two different narratives uh, um, uh, of like how serious the problem is and how we, we are supposed to go about it. And uh, at some point, like, you know, they, they, they're, and they're both medics, like they both have some connection to, to, to the medical community. Um, but they say opposite things. Hmm. Like, you know, one of them, one of them has recently recovered from coronavirus and they, they, they tend, uh, and, and she tends to minimize 
she says, well, you know, it's, it's bad for everybody when you get sick, but it's not the end of the world, la la la. And on the other hand, uh, you know, on the other side, you have this guy who used to um, work in the, in the government commission for public health in the previous government or whatnot, I don't remember. Um, and he, on the other hand, is like voicing like very loudly his criticism of Boris Johnson and, and uh, because it was, it was, it was when, um, when they came up with the herd immunity strategy, mm. right? Like when, I don't know if you heard about it, but like when, you know, before they actually changed course, and um, and started kind of like going old style lockdown like we did and like Spain did. Uh, they had this. They, they presented this herd immunity strategy, and there was this like week where the you know there was a public public debate about it. And you can see you know in this video, it's just clear that those two guests have been invited to the show by virtue of the of their disagreement, like by mm -hmm. virtue of the fact that they each represent opposite positions. And uh, and everything the journalist said, uh, does is say like, oh, why are, why are you guys bringing politics into this? Like, tell us what the science says. It's like, I mean, I, you know, this is so fuck. It's so insane because he must be aware of the reason why those two individuals were invited and not two other individuals. Well, you're you giving know, giving him a lot of credit in saying that. Yeah, I, I I don't know. Like, I mean, is he is he just naive beyond comprehension? Is he, is he self-consciously playing a part uh, or is he just a victim? Like, does he need to play along with that script because otherwise he wouldn't be earning his salary? Uh, you know, like, you know, I don't want which, I don't know which one of the three it is, like whether he is forced, uh, like whether he is self-conscious and doesn't want to do it, and, but doesn't have any other way, uh, whether he is self-conscious and doesn't mind uh, doing this thing and pretending it's, it's public service. Um, or whether he is completely unaware. Like, it could be any of the three, but the point is that, you know, the behavior of that journalist is the problem that society should focus on at the moment when we're talking about fake news and when we're talking about polarization, not the fact that there are two scientists who, who belong to the same field and say different things. Because those two, like, one is related to, to, to uh, the mistakes in our mentality or on, on how we process meaning and the whole kayfabe thing that we talked about before. And the other one is just relates to this whole discourse uh, about, um, you know, science and truth being a, pro a process rather than, you know, a bunch of content. Um, Cause like, I, I don't know, like I, I'm truly gonna send you that video because it's, it's really, um, I think everybody should see it. I think it should become viral and it will never become viral because it has the most boring title on earth. <laughs> it literally says like, it's, you know, fi 500 cases in the UK uh, uh, Britain and Ireland included in the in the travel ban from the USA and like uh, the, the fourth recorded death in the UK like it, nobody would be interested from the title in re-watching that video but it's such a you know it's it's such a little treasure box of literally everything that is wrong with society right now uh, that it's it's just precious well if you'd like to go into depth uh, about Using this as an example to try to ask the question whether journalists are more evil or more incompetent, I would love to participate in that type of a discussion. Though I think it, at at uh, present time, that might be outside of the scope of our discussion capability. But it does um, it begs to be seen in the future how uh, how the events of this pandemic will be 
recorded in history and will be used to inform future action and, and future political uh, political discussion. Uh, I would like to speak with you about it again further into the future when we can consider all of this to be behind us so that we can apply a little bit of our anal analytical capability to uh, the responses of different heads of state and the role of the media uh, throughout. I'll, I'm looking forward to that if you want to participate in it. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. sure. All right. I think this has been a very, this, this has been very interesting. And uh, I'm actually, uh, you know, I mean, you know me, you know, I tend to, uh, to, to um, over talk. <laughs> um, uh, and so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I hope I didn't, I didn't take up too much space because I like, I, I feel like I've been talking much, much more than you and maybe, uh, um, and there, there were some questions I also wanted to ask you, but I don't know if this is already too long for the, the podcast. I'll um, put it this way. I'm very appreciative that you made it so easy on me by uh, applying, by, by introducing so many of these ideas. And I'm glad to just serve as a little bit, as, a, as, the, as gentle as the hand of the free market in my ability <laughs> to course correct our conversation. But I'm, uh, I'm willing to call this one a success. And I'm looking forward to the next time that you and I can speak on this topic when, when time has progressed and when we have a little bit more information, certainly to suit the, uh, oh, sure. the process of, of, of historicity. All right.